So <clears throat> Rob Block was six foot nine inches tall when he started high school, first year in high school, six feet nine inches tall. He was spotted right away as an up-and-coming uh, professional basketball player. He was highly scouted with every game he played while he was in high school, went on to play uh, university ball for the University of Kentucky, which was one of the top four teams at that time, top universities, then got on and got uh, scouted and was offered a job for the L.A. Clippers, and then went from there to play professional ball in Italy for about uh, about six years, and then came back to the States and started playing professional ball for another year for the Clippers once again. The reason I know this is because I played ball with Rob Locke. Rob Locke was on our high school team, and when we got our team together for that first year in high school, Rob Locke, 6'9", the rest of us pre-puberty, 5'2", kind of stuff, and we're like, this is so great. We are going to kill everybody. All we got to do is throw the ball to Rob. He'll dunk it. We don't have to do anything else. And we're going to win every game. And we were so excited having that first team meeting. And then the senior varsity coach came in, the coach of the number one team. And he came and he goes, I need to have a meeting with you guys. And he explained, I need you to play the long game. We're going to take Rob and we're going to move him up to the number one team. And it's going to be hard. He's going to get beat up because he's a scrawny little first year high school person, right? No muscle just all height. And he's going to be with guys that are all five years, four and five years older than he is. And he's going to learn to be tough and strong, and we're going to work him and let him live up to the potential that he's going to be. It's going to be hard on you guys. I'm going to ask you to not quit. You're going to play without Rob for the next two to three years, and it's going to be hard, but I want you to learn how to play ball. You play ball, and you go for it, and you win. Because what's going to happen is, by you being trained without Rob, us training Rob without you, by the time you guys come together in the first uh, time you're this one varsity team, we're going to go to state championships. I know we are, but you got to trust me. He goes, this is going to be risky. It's going to be hard. you got to play the, the long game. This will not be easy on you. won't be easy on Rob. And he was right. We did this thing, and we played ball, and we lost every game. From then all the way until I got up to the senior varsity team, we lost everything. We had no height on our team, and we just learned to take really long three-point shots, right? Because we had really long. But we all got good at that to the point where Rob getting beat up, beat up, beat up. By the time we got there, he had learned his strength, how to master the center court of the basketball and the center key. And we did. We went on to the state championships. And he says, Coach kept saying, this is going to be hard. He kept coming to us all through the seasons in our first year, second year, third year of high school, until we got that top team and says, I know this is hard. you got to trust me. I know this is hard. Trust me. Trust me. It's risky. It's painful. I know you haven't won a game in like two years. Hang in there. And he was right. We're talking about the long game today. How do you play the long game? A guy by the name of Dean Karnazes, he was an ultra-marathon runner. He's the guy who broke the record. He's from the States. He ran 50 marathons in 50 consecutive days in 50 different states all through America. And he writes, somewhere along the line, we kind of as a people, as a culture, have seemed to have confused comfort with happiness. Any goal worth achieving involves an element of risk and pain. About three weeks ago, we started a series called Facing Faithward, and we're 
kind of going verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 11 in the Bible, and we're providing a daily devotional and a weekly small group discussion guide for your home groups or for you to reflect on on your own. Uh, there's a weekly pastoral letter in the newsletter about another angle on faith. Uh, we've got an Acts of Kindness Challenge coming up that you'll hear about next week. And, and they're all components around this study to help us have more of an immersive kind of transformational experience to build up our faith, to build up our courage, to build up our confidence, to build up our hope for what it is that God has for us in the future here at Ham Central. And today, we're going to look at um, Moses. And we're going to look at Moses. Sorry, is this on? Oh, cool, thanks. Uh, today we're going to look at the story of Moses uh, as told in Hebrews chapter 11 from verses 23 through 29. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to that, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 20, starting at verse 23, or if you've got your flat screen, just flip it on your phone and follow along. Uh, and we're going to look at this idea of what endurance is. What does is, what is enduring faith look like? How do you play the long game of faith? Now, it's about this word endurance, this word endurance, something we need so much of right now because people are so tired. We're just so tired. Uh, we, um, the pandemic has had us live for the last two and a half years in this exhausting and constant state of heightened awareness, heightened alert, heightened protection mode. And instead of fleeing or fighting, we're in there all the time, and it's exhausting us. See, normally when a country is invaded, like what's happening in Ukraine, people band together. They band together with friends and neighbors and workmates, and, and they fight the common enemy. But with COVID, the thing about COVID is that we're told that those people you would normally band with, your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, even your family, we're now told that actually they are the enemy. They're the ones that might hurt you. They're the ones that might get you sick. You know that little child that lives next door likes to run over and, and say hi to you. Well, they're too young to be vaccinated and they could kill you. If you talk to them or if you breathe on them or they breathe on you. During the first lockdown when uh, Rachel and I were living in Auckland and Brianna was only about 18 months old or so, we would go to the park, which is just down the road from where we lived. And, we, and Brianna had this thing. She just walks up to everybody. Hi, hi, hi. So she walks up to this elderly woman and she says, hi. And this lady goes, stay away from me. You might kill me. She told this my little 18-year-old assassin. And so I go up and I pick her up and I go, come on, Brianna, let's go before I kill you. And I moved away. So we've learned to stay away from each other, right? We've just learned to stay away. And now we're dealing with the after effects of that. We're living in an era called the great resignation where everybody's quitting. Everyone's quitting. Uh, a new survey just came out of pastors in America, but I think it affects us here as well. The percentage of pastors who want to quit their jobs has never been higher. 60% of pastors want to quit their jobs right now. See, pastors carry stuff. They carry the weight of others' fears and the weight of others' pains and the weight of others' complaints and the weight of others' expectations, and it takes its toll. And they're like, enough's enough. 
the percentage of people leaving church right now has never been higher, saying they're never going to return to gather worship ever again. Marriages are experiencing a spike as COVID spikes and lockdowns linger. Uh, COVID divorce rates are spiking now as well. This increased time with each other in isolation and lockdowns has done the opposite of creating greater intimacy in a climate where you still have to work at home. So you're always tired with a threat of job loss hanging over your head, making you work longer and harder while you're at home, living in that constant state of fatigue, that exhaustion, that physical exhaustion, that emotional exhaustion. It's made people turn to Netflix and just flick through you know, four seasons of a show in one day instead of turning to each other. It's made people turn to another bottle of wine instead of turning to each other. It's made people turn to another slice of cake instead of turning to each other. And this lack of intimacy and this lack of connection sped up by COVID and lockdowns, a lot of couples are calling it quits. We're living in an era of giving up. The worst hit demographic of this has hit 20 to 24-year-olds. That's the demographic that's been hit the hardest, usually filled with hope, right? And dreams and, 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 and thoughts and visions about their future. They've had all their big celebrations, high school balls and high school graduations and 21st parties and uni graduations, all canceled on them. Canceled, 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 canceled. And, and they're like, why? I'm just going to give up. And they're giving up on degrees and they're giving up on friendships and they're giving up on dreams. And we need this secret to endurance right now. We need to know what's it mean to not give up, how to play the long game, no matter what's going on around us. So before we dive into these scriptures, these verses about this story of Moses, a little quick recap of the historical context. Remember the book of Hebrews? They're written to Hebrews, right? Hebrews. Written to first century Jewish Christians. And, and most of those Christians that came from that Jewish background, they had this really strong belief that Jesus was the Messiah. And they started off really, really strong, but now they're losing it. They're losing the hope. They're, they're tired of waiting for things to get better. Uh, Jesus had seemed so promising. The, the kingdom thing he talked about seemed so hopeful, but Everything's getting worse. Look around. It's just getting worse. We're getting beaten up all the time, persecuted more and more and more for our faith in Jesus, ostracized, pushed aside. We're suffering, and we're thinking about quitting. Think about quitting. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews does this. He gives reasons on why to keep on keeping on, reasons to keep going by telling stories Stories from their Jewish history, stories from scripture, stories from their traditions and their experiences of how great heroes of faith, great movements of God, life-changing, culture-changing events started really small, started with just a few people, and then grew and grew and did stuff that seemed impossible at the time. So in the verses we're about to look at, we're going to look at principles this time. Today we're going to look at principles in Moses' life that shows us how to keep on keeping on, how to play the long game, how to endure. Principles that if you feel like you can't keep doing this, if you just are about to give up, if you think it's time to quit, and I mean quit anything, quit anything, quit your faith, quit your church, quit your marriage, quit your family, quit your friends, quit your job, quit your health, whatever, 
This morning, we're going to look at Moses' life. And we're going to learn from him the way Hebrews lays it out and talks about how, what Moses endured and then look at how he endured it. Five times Hebrews does this. This is what Moses endured. This is how he endured it. This is what Moses endured. This is how he did it. Five times cycle. So we're going to go through this cycle five times. And we're going to look at this. What can we learn from the faith of Moses during these crises in Moses' life? And the first thing we see that Moses endured was a childhood trauma. He started life hard. He started with a childhood trauma. Uh, it all started this. I mean, it was a major childhood trauma, too. Verse 23, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They weren't afraid to disobey what the king said they had to do. Is what that means. Now, what's this about? See, the Hebrews letter assumes we know the stories. So we're going to dive into the story a little bit and be reminded about what he's referring to. Why did they have to hide a baby? Why hide the baby for three months? And what was the king's edict? So just a quick little historical background. About 3,500 years ago, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were in slavery, right? They were slaves in Egypt. And they had been slaves for about 400 years. And the Pharaoh was getting pretty nervous because these Hebrews had no Netflix. They practiced intimacy, and their numbers were growing. And they were getting big. And how are we going to control this huge group of slaves? So he decided it's time to thin the herd a little bit. And so I'm going to decimate their population, he decides, by commanding that all male Hebrew slaves should be drowned in the Nile River. All the slave babies, I mean, drowned in the Nile River. And Moses' parents responded to that, but responded to that with faith. And they make a basket. And they line the basket with pitch, and they make it waterproof. And now it floats. And they hide the baby in the reeds and the bulrushes of the river for three months. Three months, this poor kid is living in a waterbed on the River Nile, and they're going to take care of him and sneak over to him and feed him and care for him while he's hidden in these reeds. His mom and his sister Miriam, they kind of take turns and they're helping this out. Why? Because they don't want their baby to be killed. They don't want their soldiers to find him and drown him, as was the king's edict. And then there's a plot twist. Of all things, one day Pharaoh's own daughter shows up at the same spot for a swim and a bath and finds the floating waterbed, and finds baby Moses. And her, art, her heart just kind of bleeds for this little one. And so she adopts him and becomes his foster mother. And now, ironically, the very child that Pharaoh ordered to be killed now lives in Pharaoh's palace and becomes his grandson and apparently comes in line with the prince of Egypt. In fact, his own mother secretly gets hired as the nanny. So now, not only is he safe, he's living in the palace of the person who wanted to kill him, and his own mother, whom he's been taken away from, is actually the person that's going to care for him. Moses had no idea. He's a baby, right? He has no idea that the nurse who took care of him his whole life uh, as a baby was actually his mother. But as the story unfolds, he eventually finds out, probably around age 40, about his 40th birthday, 
according to Stephen's speech in the book of Acts, he finds out the truth, and that sets up his next problem. He has a serious identity crisis as a result of this. Imagine the conversation. Moses, good news. You're 40 years old. Not many people live to 40 right now. You've made it. You're 40 years old. Good news. Bad news? Yeah, you're not the Pharaoh's grandson. Things are going to change a little bit. But even more bad news, you're not even Egyptian. You're not even Egyptian. But there's good news to that. Now you don't have to wear that funky little eyeliner stuff anymore. So that's cool. But there's even bad more. There's more bad news. That lady over there, she's not your mother. The good news is, though, you know your mother. She's your nurse. Pharaoh's like, what? What? And, and your people? Well, here's some more bad news. You're actually not part of the royal family. But it gets even worse. Your people, they're down there. They're the lowliest of the low. They are the lowest of caste slaves slaving away down there for us. What do you do with that? Happy birthday. What what do you do with that information? Well, verse 24 says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, what is going on here? What's, what's Hebrews talking about? Christ, Jesus? People don't even know who Jesus is right now. What's all this about? Well, Hebrews is saying that the Christ that you worship now as the Lord and, and Son of God was the same Lord that Moses worshipped then. So he discarded, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to a greater reward. Now, just to give you an idea of what Moses would have been thinking, think about King Tut, right? King Tut was not the Pharaoh of Moses, but he's from the same dynasty. This is the King Tut era, same dynasty, around the same general area. Uh, biblical chrono- chronology seems to say that Moses was during the time of what they called the Ramses dynasty. And so King Tut was related to the Ramses family. So he's in that same kind of dynasty area. And we know of King Tut because in 1922, remember, they uncovered his tomb. Uh, Howard Carter found it. It was totally intact. And like all pharaohs, they found out what pharaohs were buried with. Pharaohs were buried with all their favorite stuff. So they found his, his tomb, right? Think of all the pictures you have seen of King Tut's tomb, and now think of this is what Moses was giving up. See, the Egyptians really do, they really did want to take everything with them. They really did. Everything's coming with me. He had his favorite chair. He had his favorite necklace. He had his favorite golden jandals. You never know when you might need golden jandals, you know, in the afterlife. And so uh, when Moses left the treasures of Egypt, This is what he was leaving. He was leaving real treasures. This was not metaphorical. This was serious wealth. He was leaving all this wealth, wealth we can't even dream of. He was leaving it all behind. And he stepped out of those golden jandals and into the identity of the poorest of the poor. And you know that poor Hebrew clan? You know what they did? They rejected him. Total rejection is what he had to deal with next. That was his third crisis. I mean, imagine 
first of all, what's going on. In the Egyptian world, this high upper crust, high society people, imagine what they were calling him. You ungrateful little so-and-so. You were found in a river. They brought you up as their own, and you are so, you are anti-Egyptian, you are unpatriotic, you are unappreciative, and they probably use all these other Egyptian four-letter words. Imagine the scorn that would have been heaped on them. And then it gets worse. He goes to his very own people, and in verse 27 we write, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Now again, the Hebrew original readers would have heard this, read this, and went, yeah, yeah, I get that. What are they talking about? What is this referring to? Why? Why did he have to leave Egypt? Well, there's another great story behind it. And you're probably thinking of the Bible studies and the movies you've watched in the past. Moses is about 40 years old, right? He realizes he's not really Egyptian. His people are the poor slaves. So he rolls up his sleeves and he unfurls the red cape and he says, I will be their savior. I know things. I am educated. I have connections. I will save them. And he goes down to save them. So he shows up on his white steed. I, Moses, am now a Hebrew with a big H on his chest. (laughs) And then the Bible tells us that he sees an Egyptian doing something. This is the story. Looking at Exodus chapter 2. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked one of, the, one of them in the wrong, he says, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just like you killed that Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid. And he realized, what I did must have become known. He's like, oh no, someone did see me. Everybody here knows what I did. The Hebrews don't want me as their ruler and their savior and their judge. They don't trust me. They know I can fly off in anger and do stupid things. I forced myself into that role to be their savior, to be their leader. I didn't ask. I didn't show trust. I didn't show relationship connection. They don't want me. They don't know me. And then it goes on. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. See, the Egyptians don't want him. The Hebrews, they don't want him. Nor do they want his forced, arrogant leadership that he was applying to them. So why Moses had to fled, and and the reason he had to go live in Midian for 40 years is because nobody wanted him. Everybody wanted him dead, and he had to just get out. So now Moses has nothing, nothing. He has no palace. He has no people. Why? And this is really, really important. In the zeal of the new covenant, in the zeal of wanting to do God's work, he forgot to do God's work. He forgot to do God's will. Yes, we need to do God's will. We need to do things like free the oppressed and fight for justice. And he wanted to do that, but he forgot doing God's will means you need to do it in God's way. And you need to do it in God's time. It's it's what you do, but it's also the way that you do it. 
that shows you that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not just what you believe, and it's not just what you say, and not just what you do. It's how you believe it, and how you say it, and how you do what God's asked you to do. See, in the book of James, uh, the, the book of James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's one of the most forgotten Proverbs in the Bible. See, right now, it does not matter if you are politically left, right, or center. It does not matter if you've been attending this church for 40 years or 40 minutes. It doesn't matter how right you might be on ethical and theological and moral issues. Unrestrained anger is not a God-given quality. It's not a God-given mandate. It's not how you do things in the name of Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves, do we want to be right or do we want to be righteous? See, if your goal is to be right, to be on the right side of every issue, and, and, and you know you're just going to do, you know, you're just going to kind of be a bull in the china shop, kind of bust your way into every relational and every relational issue that comes up, you're going to prove to everybody that you're right, and you will win every relational issue, but you will lose every relationship, and you won't have a place, and you won't have a people. But if you want to be righteous, that's a whole lot more difficult. See, to be righteous is to exhibit what the Bible says are the fruits of the Spirit, kindness and goodness and gentleness and patience. It means to be like Christ no matter what the issue is, no matter what the pressure is, no matter what the, the, the noises are that's going on in your head. So if you're going to do that, you've got to be very different in the way you approach things. We have to approach it in a humble way. We have to be gentle. We have to be patient. And Moses had to learn that to do what God asked him to do. We read in Numbers 12 that Moses became the most humble man on earth. Numbers 12, verse 13, I think, or 23. The most humble man on earth. But he didn't start that way. He had to learn it, and he learned it during 40 years in exile. Now, again, if you remember the Bible story, if you remember the movies you've watched about Moses, God, in the story, God um, has to call him back to come back and do what he's been told to do now that he's ready, and he reaches out to this old man out in the wilderness through a burning bush, right? God talks to him in a burning bush. And, and Moses, he says, Moses, you can now go back. You can take up the role I have set out before you. Set my people free. And Moses goes, not me. Nah, I've been there, done that, messed that up. I got the T-shirt. I got the mug. I threw it away. I broke it. I failed at that. I'm not doing that again. And God says, no, you don't understand. I'm going to be with you. I need to be with you. I need you to go back to Egypt. And Moses says, no, 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 no. We don't talk about Egypt. No, 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 no. We don't talk about Egypt. No, no, no. But Moses does. He goes back. He goes back to Egypt. And finally, after learning all these lessons and, and all this change in his life, he goes back to Egypt, and we know the story, right? Everything goes perfectly and so smooth, right? Not a chance, 
Right? He's going to go and he's going to do God's will in God's way, in God's time. He's in the center of God's will. He knows who he is in God. And things are going to be so perfect. And it's not even close. Things get worse. And he starts enduring the worst of trials. And things go crazy. He goes to the palace. He says, Pharaoh, like, long lost brother, you know me. It's me. Come on. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, yeah, you know what? Good to see you, bro. But no, not a chance. And just to show you who's boss, I'm going to make your people bleed. And he starts to really oppress the slaves and really punish them and, and persecute them. So the Hebrews hold a meeting. And they hold a meeting and they call in Moses and they said, stop helping us. Just leave us alone. I don't, we don't want you to be our leader. You've made things even worse. So Moses goes off and he prays and he's like, God, I'm in your will. I'm doing it your way with your time. What are you doing? And then he watches everything turn into a complete nightmare. And there's plagues and there's frogs everywhere, and there's hail, and there's locusts, and there's ecological upheaval and climate disasters, and then it winds up with this plague, this plague of death. And now, even today, Jewish people remember this at every year at Seder, and, and they remember that God says that by daubing blood on the, of the Passover lamb on your do- doorpost, the people can be saved by death. Hebrews picks up on that, verse 28. By faith, Moses, he, Moses, kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. See how important it is for the Hebrews to hear this? Are you kind of getting where the writer of Hebrews is going with this? He's foreshadowing what they're experiencing. He knows they're perishing. He knows they're persecuting. He knows they're about to give up. And he's saying, if you simply trust in the Lamb of God... In Jesus Christ. Just simply trust in Jesus Christ. You'll get through this. So finally the Passover happens, and the people get up, and they, they walk out of, into freedom, right? Passover happens, and, and, and the Egyptian children die, and all the Hebrews live, and they walk out of Egypt, and Christ is averted, and as they're walking out, they're cheering and high-fiving each other, and everything's so smooth, and they're happy, right? Not even close. It gets crazy. And now he has to endure impossible problems as a result of doing what God has asked them to do. They experience a whole series of events where it looks like they're going to be wiped out, where it looks like they're going to be doomed. And at one point, Pharaoh says, okay, go, just go, get out, go. And as they go, he's like, what am I doing? These are my slaves. They don't tell me what to do. I tell them what to do. If, they, if I want their opinion, I give it to them. So we got to chase them down. So they start chasing them down. And now Moses is leading them through the wilderness, and they get stuck at the Red Sea, right, or the Reed Sea. And they got the sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army, the biggest, most uh, uh, strong, trained, super-powered, resourced army in the world is behind them, and they are trapped, and they are powerless, and they're all complaining, we're going to we're going to die. Moses, I told you we didn't need your help. And they go, and they're, we're going to die. If we would have stayed, it just would have been our firstborn. Now it's going to be all of us. And the little son's like, really? You're going to throw me under the bus like that? And so they have no hope for salvation except for a miracle of God. And that's what happens. It's exactly what happens. Verse 29, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Just Makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? I mean, we just read it like, oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, God. No way. The people are like, after all these plagues and all these miracles 
and, and experiencing the Seder and watching the children of the Egyptians die, but not their own die. And then, and then watching the Reed Sea open up. Man, it's like, now they're like, man, God is real. It's all good. I got faith. We'll just hang in there. We'll keep on keeping on. God's going to keep being there for us. But it doesn't happen. Right? We got some of the shortest memories possible, we humans. And that's not the way it was. They responded just like we all probably would. Got the Red Sea in front of them, the Egyptian army behind them. And in Exodus 14, verse 11, they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Now, this is really sarcastic because Egypt is known for mass graves, right? That's the land of mass graves. So they're being very sarcastic there. And they go, what have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, remember that meeting? We had a meeting, Moses. Didn't we say to you, leave us alone. Let us just serve the Egyptians till we die. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the deserts. They were not going, yay, God. You could, they're like, boo, Moses. Like, why are we following this guy? See, the point here, the point of the author of Hebrews is this. He's like, listen, the greatest hero in the Jewish history, the greatest hero of faith is Moses. And Moses did not have it easy. Look at all the things that Moses had to endure. Most of these things happened after he decided to follow God, after he decided to put God first and do it God's way. And this is where it talks to us. Maybe you feel like what you've been doing is right. I've done everything right, and it's still going so wrong. And you're like, look, I took the first step of faith, and I'm on the right path, and now I realize this path is heading to the edge of a cliff, and I'm doing all in Jesus' name. Maybe that, yeah, you thought that after you got baptized or after you got sober or after you accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, or after you were honest and you confessed the truth to the people that are closest to you, or after you started seeing a counselor, or after you went and saw the pastor, that things are going to go smooth and, and be fixed. And the Hebrews of author is saying, well, actually, sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes things get even harder when you do things the way God wants, because now there's opposition now there's fighting that happens. Sometimes it's the enemy, and it's a spiritual fight. Sometimes it's each other, and it's a relational fight. Sometimes it's the thoughts in your own head, and it's a personal fight. So what do you do? What do you do when you're doing everything right? You're in the midst of those fights. How do you play the long game with God? So we're going to close up really quick here by looking at how Moses did it. How did he endure? Now, to be clear, just real quick, because remember, the readers of Hebrews, they know Moses' story. But for us, as a reminder, Moses really wanted to quit. We have scripture after scripture in Numbers that says, get me out of this. He says to God, and maybe you can relate to this, he says, why are you doing this to me in Numbers 11? What have I done to deserve this? You've made me responsible for all these people. They're not my children. And then he goes on and he writes this. I can't believe he writes this. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse who carries an infant when they're not even my own kids? Now, how ironic is that? Remember who's saying this. It's like Moses totally forgot his history. Wasn't he carried by a person who was not his mother and cared for? Wasn't he 
provided a home and a house that was not his family? Wasn't he raised by someone who did not conceive him? Does he even hear what he's saying? Do you ever hear what you say? Ever complained about having to do something that once upon a time was actually done for you? And you're in a better place now because of someone stepping in. And now you have the opportunity to step in. And you didn't act on that little voice like the stories we heard from some of our elder candidates. You ever thought when you got complaints and you found excuses to not help someone financially when you've been helped financially by others? To meet with someone in pain when you just don't have the time, when you've had other people give up their time to meet with you when you're in pain? Allow someone to stay at your house when it's really inconvenient when you have slept on multiple couches in the past because life was hard. When you got to hold someone's confidence and, and when they've confessed something to you when you really want to spread the gossip because you forget that other people have held your confidences in helping you make changes in your life. See, sometimes when we're so overwhelmed, we don't want to show people the same exact grace that we ourselves have received. And that's how Moses is concluding. And then he says this, this job, it's too much for me. How can I take care of all these people by myself? If this is the way you're going to treat me, God, just kill me now and end my miserable life. Numbers 11. See, I wanted to read this because the Hebrews knew this story. We have to be reminded. See, Moses did not like what he had to do. God often calls us to things that we don't want to do. He often calls us to things that are hard to do. Sometimes that's how I know God called me to do something, because I know it's going to be hard. He, he, he doesn't tap you on the shoulder when he thinks other people can do it. He's tapped you on the shoulder because he knows only you can do this, because that's how I wired you. That's how I gifted you. That's how I'm going to walk alongside you. This is for you to do, not anybody else. And it means you do it in spite of your feelings. See, faith doesn't mean that you have all the good feels and you get Jesus jump when we sing and happy and joyful. That's not faith. Faith means you endure in spite of the feelings. When you're telling God, take me now, and then you take another step on that path. See, Moses chose to focus on something. Three things that reveals how he endured. And it comes from Hebrews 11, verse 26, kind of through 29, these last few verses. First, he chose to focus on the long term. He focused on long-term gain, the long game, basically. He says he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than, um, than of greater value than all those treasures of Egypt. Now, this word regarded, he regarded disgrace. Regarded is a weak translation. It's an English translation of the Hebrew word. It actually means he assessed. He weighed up the pros and cons. It's an accounting term. He weighed the value. He did a con list and a pro list, and then he made a decision. He did a kind of a profit-loss comparison. You know, following God, treasures of Egypt. Ooh. Ooh, following God, treasures of Egypt. And he kind of weighed it up. And he concluded that following God was of greater value than the treasures in the long game. See, what, most, what Moses understood is that all of life is a trade-off. It's all a trade-off. All of life is a trade-off. 
Every decision you make, you're deciding to trade off one activity for another. This experience for that experience. This use of time for that use of time. This use of resources for that use of resources. It's all a trade-off. And you have to ask yourself, is this trade-off worth it? You count the cost, right? You count the cost. Moses concluded, well, you know what? In the short term, the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt are more fun. Definitely more fun. But in the long game, following God is way more worth it. I'll take the risk. I'll take the pain. Don't wait until you're on your deathbed to think about, was the life I lived worth it? Don't wait for that moment. Do it now. Wait up now. Do that pro-con assessment now. Thoughtfully choose to play the long game for Jesus starting right now. And then secondly, Moses focused on a long-range perspective. He says, looking forward to his reward. Really motivating. Looking forward to my reward. See, a friend of mine died. She was only 35 years old, and she died of cancer. And, and as she was on her deathbed, and they brought in a hospice bed into her room, and all family and friends, we gathered around her. And while we were gathering around her, she was kind of barely breathing, and the doctor said, this is, we're very close. It's good you're here. All of a sudden, she sat up. She sat up and she looked at the door that was at the end of the room open and she looked as if there was someone there and she says, no, not yet. And we're like, okay, the hallucinations are happening and I'm not sure what's going on. And then she lay back down and she went around and told everybody how she loves them and how much she loves them and for some people why she loves them. She looked at her husband and we allowed us to hear her tell him how much she loved him. And then she looked at the door again I never told the story. She looked at the door again, and she said, okay, I'm ready. And then her final, her final words were, oh, guys. <coughs> it's so worth it. Oh, guys. Guys, it's so worth it. And then she died. There is a reward. Please never, never forget it. Jesus says there's a reward now, that, that life right now is rewarding in this life. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And then Jesus talked about the greater reward, the final reward in heaven, long-term gain. Long-term perspective, long-term living. That's what he focused on. And then he focused on long-lasting power. He focused on the power of God. He said that Moses says this is what kept him going, that he persevered because he saw who, him who was invisible. Now, how do you do that? I guess so many people ask me, how do you hear God? How do you see God? How did my friend see whoever she saw? How do you do that? How do you see someone who's invisible? And this is what he means. The writers of Hebrew means remember who God is. Remember, he kept reminding himself who God was. That's how Moses got through it. Think about um, these last two and a half years. I think when, I, when you look at what's happened in the last two and a half years with all the COVID lockdown and stuff, 
I think the outlook and the perspective and the vision of so many Christians over the last half of the, half of the years has meant that Jesus has gotten smaller in the last two and a half years. COVID has gotten bigger. Social ills, it's gotten bigger. Conspiracy theories, they've gotten bigger. Politics has gotten bigger. But Jesus, for a lot of Christians, has gotten smaller, smaller. We have big problems. And we read over and over and over in Scripture that Jesus is bigger than all of them. So how do you remember that? How do you live like that? That Jesus is bigger than any problem when you're faced with fear and doubt and saying, God, get me out of here. It's about what you focus on. It's about what you talk about. It's what, what you think about. It's about what you're reading. It's about what you're watching and scrolling on your phone about. It's about what you're watching. And, and whatever you think about and watch and read and talk about, that's what gets bigger in your mind. See, a lot of church-going Christians have let the world, have let social media, have let news media, have let entertainment ignite your imaginations and set the agenda for your thought lives much more than you've allowed Jesus and Scripture to do it. And you've done it with no filter, with no fact-checking, with no cross-referencing, with no finding out who's behind that website, who's behind that Facebook page, to see what the undercurrent might be in the news feeds that you're reading. That's on us. That's not on the church. That's not on God. That's on us. See, a church can provide you with free resources, with Bibles and Bible studies and daily devotions and, and weekly home groups and weekly church services and, and singing and coffee and social times. But if instead of focusing on Jesus and focusing on God's power, instead of doing that and you find that 95% of your attention is being taken up with proclaimed problems of other people of this world... That's on us. See, we need to take control of our thought life. We got to take control of what we let in, and it's a battle. It is literally a battle. If the enemy cannot make you bad, the enemy will make you tired and bored. And when you are tired and bored, you let your mind wander. And it wanders, and it wanders through social media and news feed and entertainment landmines. And it takes control of your thought life. And, and unless, unless you choose to focus on who God is, on Jesus Christ. And that's how Moses played the long game. See, if you've been distracted by short-term problems, if you're living a short-term perspective and, and playing and entertaining short-term temptations to deal with it, including the temptation to quit something or someone, please don't solve temporary problems with permanent solutions. Play the long game is what we're being reminded by, by Hebrews. Of course, life is hard. It's hard. It's hard for the whole world at the moment. But don't, don't quit. Don't quit on God. Don't quit on family. Don't quit on each other. And think long-term gain. Think long-range perspective. Think long-lasting power. And you do that by remembering who God is, that he's for you. He's not against you. He has plans to proper, uh, prosper you and to not harm you. He's got plans to give you hope and, and give you a future. That's my God. Do you know him? Do 
Do you spend time with him? Do you remember who he is? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, the reality is life is hard. And we're surrounded by hard stuff and hard choices and hard situations. But in the midst of it, a life with you is not hard. Your yoke is easy. And all you ask of us is us. You ask of us to be with you, to accept you as Lord and leader of our life, and then to spend time with you, and to hear your voice, and allow you to transform us, and to renew our mind, and give us eyes that see you at work, and around the world around us, to not focus on the negative, and on the problems, and all the issues that take away dreams, and hope, and courage, but instead focus on you, a God who has plans for us, plans to prosper us, and plans for a future and a hope, and to be a part of your life-changing activity on this planet, to see our neighbors' lives change and our family members change, our own lives change, to look like you, to be like you, to live like your kingdom here on earth. God, help us never to forget. It's about you. It's all about you. You are God. We are not. You are a Savior. We are not. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. And thank you that you've given us the ability to play the long game. And you've allowed us to do it not alone, but with each other. Help us to walk with each other on that long, miraculous road of following you. In Jesus' name, amen.